times when the station may not have uh, those facilities and we have a couple of other options that we can use. Uh, one that a lot of people have heard about is where we um, soak toilet paper rolls in uh, diesel and kerosene and light them and that'll give us about a, I think it's about a four or five hour burn. To be honest, it's pretty dim and it's quite a challenge. Still breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast series about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Royal Flying Doctor Service is best known for using planes to bring emergency medical and primary health services to rural and remote Australia, where access to a local doctor or to a local hospital is just not possible. It's our planes that are often the most memorable for the work we do, no matter the landscape, the weather or the medical challenges. RFDS planes are flown by a single pilot in an open cockpit. We have two makes of planes we fly, Pilatus, which are single propeller planes that are flown by our teams in Western Australia, South Australia and the Northern Territory, and Beechcraft, which have two propellers and are flown across the eastern states of Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania. We also now have a number of Pilatus jets in our fleet, the first jets in the world actually that can land on a dirt strip. And we even now have two helicopters which have just joined our ranks in Western Australia. It is an envious role to be a pilot for the RFDS and over recent times we've received some great questions through the Flying Doctor podcast hotline. So this episode we're going to do our best to answer those questions. By the way, our Flying Doctor podcast hotline is 028405 7928 if anyone listening would like to ask any other questions about the RFDS that we can answer on the podcast. I want to introduce Dave Connell, who's been a pilot with the RFGS for a number of years. He lives with his young family in Broken Hill, New South Wales, and operates out of the RFGS Broken Hill base. G'day, Dave. G'day, Lana. How are you going? I'm good. Tell me, did you decide from a really young age that you wanted to be a pilot? I did, yeah. Yeah, since I was a kid, I knew this is what I was going to be, um, and it was probably... Sure, not long after figuring that out, I decided I wanted to be an RFS pilot. What influenced you? Was it like a cartoon series or a TV show or a book or, or, or seeing local pilots? What was it that, that made you want to get your wings? A big part of that was my grandfather who was in um, Lancaster's during the war. He had an interest in flying still and um, passed that on to me and then my folks sort of nourished it when I was a, when I was a kid, got into the Air Force cadets and started flying and went on from there. Fantastic. Do you, do you remember your first solo flight? Yeah, I do. Can you tell me about that? I was terrified. So um, normally when, when you first go sol- solo, um, you'll be up to your circuit stage in your training. So just doing orbits around the air, takeoffs and landings, just one after the other. And it is pretty common that uh, your instructor will try and almost surprise you for it. Like you have an idea that you're at, approaching that stage 
but they don't want your anxieties to get the better of you. So they'll just, you know, hop out. Like they'll get you to land on the next one, then they'll you taxi off the side of the runway somewhere, and they'll quickly hop out and say, "All right, just go and do one. You'll be fine." Um, and uh, I remember I, uh, I could see it was happening. My instructor climbing out of the plane, but I was sitting there, and he was standing at the wing, just sort of smiling at me. And I just didn't understand what I was supposed to do. I just couldn't believe it. I was about to fly a plane on my own. It was absolutely terrifying. So <laughs> once you once you actually got up there, did you was there like a sense of exhilaration and achievement that you you yourself were flying this plane and and had accomplished this great dream of yours as a kid? I think the main thing is waiting till you land. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Once you once all those wheels are on the ground and you're um, at a, a safe speed then you you sort of relax a bit and sort of realize what's just occurred but yeah absolutely i was i was pretty stoked i was um 16 at the time so i um wow. yeah i'd been working for towards it for a while and saving and training my holidays and all that sort of stuff to go flying so yeah that's that's great it was a an amazing experience what was your first job in the aviation industry my first one was sweeping hangers and working reception when I first started, uh, the industry was somewhat stagnant. So there was a lot of the airlines weren't recruiting and yeah, things were a little slow. So you sort of did what you could, um, just hung around airports and operators as much as, you, much as uh, they'd let you. And then uh, eventually got a break and I started off as a flight instructor. Wow. Um, which I did for quite a few years, yeah. And then how did you come to work for the RFDS? Because you said that that was sort of a passion from very early on. So... To work for a place with the RFDS, you have to um, sort of gear you, well, like most things, I suppose, you have to really set that as a goal and gear, gear your career towards it because um, they do have quite specific uh, experience requirements to get in. Why is that? Is that because of the circumstances and locations that they fly in? Yeah, and as you mentioned, across Australia, all, all um, RFDS operators fly single pilot, which is... Great in many ways. Uh, it saves on the cost of having two pilots and those sorts of things. It allows us to fly these aircraft with extra weight. You know, that's another person we can carry elsewhere in the aircraft or, or equipment or something like that. But it also means that you're um, you're not a part of a team in terms of a cockpit environment. We're certainly a part of the team as a medical crew as a whole, uh, but, uh, yeah, not... Not so you haven't got another pilot there to bounce things off or share the load and things like that. So you really need, they really need that experience because while you're gaining that experience, you're learning your um, good judgment and how you make decisions and how you handle scenarios and you're experiencing things that it would be quite difficult to experience those things for the first time while operating in this environment. Um, right. So that's, that's the main reason why we look for people with so many hours. To be honest, the flying skill stuff, um, that's something a lot of pilots will learn and they usually learn it you know, probably within the first 1,500 hours they're flying. It's the soft skills that evolve when they have that more experience, so how they communicate their judgment, uh, how they make decisions and how they spot threats and respond and that sort of stuff. Hmm. Well, we actually have a question from the public, a, um, a young boy named Casper from Canberra. Hello, my name is Tasma and I'd like to be a pilot when I grow up. What training do I need? What training does a pilot need in the RFDS and how many hours do they have to actually have flown before they would even qualify to apply for a job? Uh, well, Casper, the minimum requirements to become an RFDS pilot is a commercial pilot's licence with a multi-engine 
command instrument rating. We'll set aside the uh, experience. I'll come back to that in a tip. To get the uh, commercial pilot's license, it's a pretty straightforward process. Just enroll, find, find a flying school that you like and you like the instructors and you're comfortable uh, and they provide exactly what you want. Enroll in that, do the course, you'll get your license, usually within one or two years. Um, instructor rating is uh, it's kind of like a, almost like a grad certificate um, if you're looking at it um, through the tertiary system, but it's um, an additional qualification on top of that license. Um, which allows us to fly in, you know, inclement weather. Once you have those things, as you mentioned, the experience, that, that does vary depending on the section. Um, I know for southeastern section, we currently look for 2,500 hours total time, 500 in command of multi-engine aircraft, and I believe it's 150 hours of night. And then we have our desirable criteria, like uh, experience in remote areas um, and experience flying high-performance aircraft, that sort of stuff. But, yeah, fundamentally, commercial uh, commercial licence and your instrument rating. Okay, great. Well, I hope, Casper, that that's answered your question. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, Dave, so what does a regular day in the life of Dave look like as an RFDS pilot? Like, uh, how long are your shifts and what do they involve? So there's a couple of days that sort of we could be rostered for. Uh, the first one would be a clinic day. Uh, clinics are where we usually do a bit of a milk run out to a couple of communities. We'll wait in that community for the last stop, spot for the middle of the day and then do the same sort of opposite route back, picking everyone up. Um, the idea is we're taking GPs, dentists, specialists, um, the mental health team and stuff out to these communities and giving, providing that service for the day. So a clinic would be uh, a clinic day we'd sign on, we'll get into the base at 7 uh, where we'd start our flight planning, have a look at how many people we've got on board, how much uh, freight we've got on board, figure out how much fuel we need, we can carry and order our fuel, make sure the aircraft's been inspected and uh, load people up and off we go. So out in Broken Hill on Mondays and Fridays, for example, we go to Wilcannia, then Ivanhoe, um, and we'll usually drop two to three people off in Wilcannia and then on to Ivanhoe, wait around there till the afternoon, then fly home. That's a clinic. Yeah. The one was more probably known for is our retrieval service. Um, out in Broken Hill, we have three types of those. We have the day shift, which is 12 hours from seven to seven, a night shift, which is the same again, but the opposite of the clock, seven to seven. And then uh, we also have a day two shift, which is from an 11 to 11. For a retrieval shift or an on-call shift, um, we'll generally you know, go about our business until uh, either our doctor or an ambulance service has a job for us, in which case they'll give us a call, tell us where it is, and what to expect if they have that information. Um, if it's an inter-hospital transfer, that's pretty straightforward. We just um, usually wait. So we, we'll get booked an ambulance either end and we just wait for our patients to arrive, load them up, off we go. Um, if it's a retrieval, it takes a lot more to get prepared for. Typically, it's on a station that um, uh, we might have to figure out what condition the strip is in. Um, might have to have a look at alternates if uh, the patient's particularly ill, instead of coming back to either Broken Hill or where we've departed from, it might they might need to go to a capital city, whether it's Sydney or Adelaide or Melbourne, um, mm. and managing fuel and that sort of stuff. So you as the pilot obviously don't have any prediction about what's going to come up. So you may suddenly be on a shift in Broken Hill and, and then end up landing in Adelaide and staying overnight in Adelaide to then fly back the next day or Melbourne or Sydney or the like, just simply based on whatever it is that's occurred? 
Yeah, exactly. It's one of the best parts of the job, to be honest. You just have no idea what's going to happen on that day. You might start a start your day with a call from uh, New South Wales Ambulance saying, yep, got one patient to go from Broken Hill to Adelaide. And you head into work and by the time you get you get there, the, the plan's changed five or six times and all of a sudden you're off to Tipperbar and then you're on to Dubbo or something like that. Mm. It's it's fantastic. It makes it really um, interesting and exciting, you know, just flying the same routes over and over again. Well, a few years back, I was lucky enough to be with you when you flew myself and a number of others uh, starting in Dubbo all the way up to Mount Isa over a period of days. It was part of a, a major event for our 90th birthday. And I came to really learn all of the checks that you do uh, around an aircraft, it became really clear to me that the pilot is fully responsible for that plane in every aspect. And so I watched as you would walk around and do all the checks on the plane before we took off. I would watch when we landed and all the little checklist actions that you took on landing. It was a real eye opener for me who, you know, I don't have an aviation background, but it was, it certainly opened my eyes. Um, we have a, another question from uh, a public, uh, Alexandra from Nowra. She called in with a question regarding the role of a pilot when it comes to aeromedical retrievals. Hi, this is Alexandra from Nowra. I have a question about pilots for the RFDS. In addition to flying the plane, do pilots get involved in the medical response and emergencies at any point? I wonder how it works being a part of a small team yet not being a doctor or a nurse. That's a great question. It's one we get quite, quite often. Fundamentally, uh, the pilot's job in the whole process is to safely look after the aircraft and transport. We do overlap a little bit with patient handling. So we look after uh, moving the stretchers, bringing the patients onto the aircraft or disembarking them and so on. But fundamentally, we, no matter what happens, we have to make sure that we're able to do our core job, which is operate safely. And a part of that is making sure that we don't do anything that's going to affect our judgment. There's no hard and fast rules to this. It's just one of those things that particularly when pilots start with the company, uh, we make it very clear that if you're going to a primary and one that looks like it might be uh, fairly intense, just stand back uh, and only get involved as far as you're comfortable with or even just shy of that to the point where even if you don't go and help them um, if they're resuscitating someone and you don't want to get involved, that's perfectly fine because your job is, as a pilot is to make sure you're in the right mindset to go and fly the plane. That being said, most of the pilots, once they get a bit of experience doing this, they tend to get a little bit more and more involved. You know, like I said, it's job by job nature, so you might be just holding an IV bag. You might be helping with compressions if that's required. Yeah, it really depends, but it does change too, and it also changes where you're at on that day, like if you're at the end of a two-week stint and you've been working constantly, you probably would think, well, I'm probably not in the best state to, I think I'll just focus on my job today. And, uh, yeah. and really, there's no need for us to get involved. They do train us at the RFDS to do basic life support, which is effectively CPR. So we yeah. can help with that. Uh, but really, the, the people that that patient need are the doctor, the nurse, and our doctors and nurses are phenomenally well-trained and so experienced that really, like, we're going to make very little difference other than helping out those guys logistically a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We also have a question from Isaac, and here's his question. Hello, my name is Isaac, and I would like to know how you land a plane in the bush when it's dark. Could you explain how that works, Dave? 
Sure. That's a great question, Isaac, and one very close to our heart in Broken Hill because um, that's probably one of the greatest challenges that we face out of this base. Uh, it's quite a remote area and we have limited facilities in a lot of places we go. We have these, you might have seen them, they're like little torches that you sit upright and you can twist the top and you have a little light. We call them E-flares. Now, a lot of stations around will have those and they, they may do a pretty good job at lighting up the strip. But there are times when the station may not have uh, those facilities and we have a couple of other options that we can use. Uh, one that a lot of people have heard about is where we um, soak toilet paper rolls in uh, diesel and kerosene and light them and that'll give us about a, oh, I think it's about a four or five hour burn. To be honest, it's pretty dim and it's quite a challenge. So we don't have to do it that often these days, thankfully, because most people have these, uh, these lights, but that is another option. Plus the cost of toilet paper rolls, sorry, of diesel and the rarity of toilet paper rolls these days, that costs a lot more than what it once did. The pilot has to be satisfied that they've got sufficient lighting for that runway. Now that it may, on a fully moonlit day, I'm sure you've all seen that you can see for miles, almost as well as you can in, in daylight. And you may not need the same sort of lighting as on uh, you know, a no-moon night. It really comes down to what the pilot's comfortable with and making sure that it's safe. I know in some of the um, interviews I've done up to this point, I've had a couple of patients tell me that they've had to use headlights of cars at either end of the strip to to light up uh, a runway or at least to show where it begins and ends, which always makes me think, gosh, pilots are clever to not smash into cars. (laughs) (laughs) um, And I I also did an interview with uh, a, a lovely doctor up in Queensland and she talked about how uh, often uh, runways are almost routinely in remote Australia, they're not fenced off. And so sometimes they're used for grazing cattle. Uh, Sometimes it's just open bushland. And so there's emus or kangaroos or wombats or whatever that can be on in the way. So how does that work in terms of what we call a roo run? How do they clear any stock or cattle or wildlife off a runway? That's this is where we really lean on our community to give us a hand. So normally, uh, as you as you said, just as we're approaching overhead or um, shortly before, we'll organise someone in the community to come and do a run, just driving up and down the strip, making sure that there's no livestock there and so on. I think everyone knows that drives on a highway that driving a highway in Australia that kangaroos will just as easily turn around and come back. And unfortunately, it does happen. There's only so much we can really uh, mitigate that risk. So. Uh, we do hit ruse every now and then, and um, which is a real shame. And, geez, I can talk, cause some damage to a plane. But finally, it's just part of it. It's just how it is out in the bush. Uh, we just make sure that we, we do what we can to move them on as much as we can. And it's not that common. I think the last one we hit was probably about two years ago, and it was probably about that again since the one prior to that. Thankfully, it's not a, a common thing. Mm. So, Dave, in the last um, five or more years that you've been working for the RFDS, you will have flown in lots of different climatic conditions and weather systems. What has been your most memorable flight when it comes to taking off or flying or landing in challenging weather? Oh, that's a tough one. Generally try and forget them. Broken Hill is often sort of considered the VFR base. You know, it's almost a desert out here. There's not that much weather that does pass through other than might have a storm here and there. Yeah, dust storms. So the dust storms that we get out of here were incredible. Yeah, absolutely incredible. It looks like something out of a movie. I'd have to say, first time I was um, t- trying to 
navigate my way through a dust storm to um, land at a station where we didn't have any sort of navigation um, aid assistance or an instrument approach procedure to, to land. That was that was pretty tricky. Yeah, actually, I think it might have been up at near Cameron's Corner on that first one. So it was a pretty remote part of part of Australia. We also do get some frontal thunderstorms that do swing through um, the district, as does every part of Australia. And every now and then when you're trying to spot a gap in between thunderstorms to get to either to someone that needs medical assistance and stuff, that that always keeps you on your toes. Am I right in understanding that a dust storm can do real damage to a plane? And so from a pilot's perspective, um, the, the, the most is done to try to prevent flying into a dust storm or, or being caught in a dust storm. Is that right? Just because of the damage it can do to the engines? Depending on the aircraft. So look, our King Airs, we have uh, what's called inertial separators in the engine, which basically direct any sort of solid matter away from the intake of the engine. That being said, it still does, a bit will always get in uh, and it does wear down your engines, your turbines a little bit uh, faster and it's not good for us in paint. The biggest thing really is the turbulence associated with the dust storm. But it's mm. it's actually, it's it's generally not that bad. Usually dust storms sit below about 4,000 feet, five, four or 5,000 feet anyway. We fly up in the tens and 20,000 feet area. So uh, we're only inside a dust storm for a brief moment during takeoff or landing. So on that memorable day you were mentioning with the station where you had a dust storm, were you landing or taking off or what was the circumstances that day? So that was landing where we had to go into the dust storm to land. Thankfully, we still had the minimum visibility required to do the job. So we had enough to get in. Um, doing the job was interesting because uh, it was a, a trauma and trying to watch the, the doctors and the nurse manage patching this patient up as best they could to transport them down to Adelaide with all this dust about with something else. They did, uh, did an amazing job. There was a brief moment where we had to just wait until the visibility improved enough for us to take off again. I think it was right. I think it might have been about 15 or 20 minutes or something like that. So do you think that after flying for so many years now that your confidence and experience um, in tackling weather events has made you smarter and wiser or giving you even more better judgment in terms of what you can and can't do? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Particularly like, and this goes back to being, requiring so many hours to fly for the RFDS. Every pilot's going to make mistakes. And as you get your hours up and, you go through that initial development after you've got your your, your commercial license. That's the period where you learn a lot. You, you learn so much in that those early in the industry years. And even in the RFDS, you, you keep on learning. And I think it's one of those things where you don't, if you don't think you're learning anymore, you should probably go and find another job. Um, <laughs> there's always a better way and there's always room for reflection. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's very sage advice. Well, then, dare I say it, let's talk about trauma. Obviously, in your day-to-day work, you're involved in transporting all manner of patients from those that are, like, critically ill, badly injured, mentally unstable, or, like, a victim of a bite or a sting or a burn. What's your most memorable patient, emergency patient transfer? In terms of the most critical, the ones, whenever we're doing stuff for kids, that's that always, no matter how hard you try and, compartmentalize and just focus on the job at hand and do you know do it well there's always that sense of urgency with kids um, you always want to make sure like not to say that we don't feel the sense of urgency with everyone but it's just a little yeah. bit extra there i don't really i can't really re- recall a particularly traumatic one where i sort of sat, sat back and thought 
I've seen too much out of that. Um, I didn't need to, to see that. But there's certainly ones where you, you have to spend a few days going back and thinking about it and processing it again. Um, actually, just the other day, I was going into um, Adelaide and unfortunately a patient had her arrested in the back and now the flight nurse was um, on top of the patient trying to revive them, which he successfully did, which is awesome. Well, I understand that patient's alive and well now. It's doing quite well. Uh, might have been discharged from hospital. But thankfully, uh, the RFDS does... Uh, is very mindful about how this affects all its staff. So they make an effort to increase the support after those sort of more intense jobs. Probably the most interesting, which is also probably the funniest one I've had, I did a uh, motorbike accident job up just in Queensland, just to the east of Birdsville. Um, a fellow that was on a holiday had come off his bike and gone over the bars and uh, managed to really hurt himself, but he made it into a, one of the largest stations up there. And so we, we flew up there, I think, the Queensland section there, they're um, busy on another job, so we looked after it for them and uh, got the guy into what, the mess hall for the, the station and he was in he was in a pretty bad way. Tough as nails, though. He managed to ride his bike to this station. I don't know how he would have done that, but <laughs> unbelievable. There's something about motorcycle riders. I was I did an interview with one and they, they were talking about how they'd, one of them had hit a, um, a pothole and this rider had broken his collarbone and then proceeded to get back on the bike and drive with a broken collarbone all the way the next hour to get to help. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. But there's something, they're a different breed of cat. But anyway, tell yeah. me tell me your story. What happened with this rider? So similar deal, he had a um, broken collarbone and a few broken ribs and um, he was in quite a state, yeah, poor fella. But um, we arrived there, they took, we'd had him in the mess hall for the, the station. It was Sunday evening. They figured out that he'd punctured a lung and... As a lot of people are probably aware, when you puncture a lung, you have a pressure issue within your chest and they often have to put in uh, some sort of relief valve to try and make sure that lung doesn't deflate completely so the person can continue breathing. So the doctor went on with, and the nurse went on with doing that and um, was standing there. I was giving them a little bit of a hand, holding IV things and instruments or whatever they needed, keeping the guy's arm up while they um, made the incision and so on. And... <laughs> At the same time, I'm having a conversation with this guy, which is a little bit surreal, having a chat to a person who's currently getting uh, <laughs> operation done on them. And at the same time, the uh, station cook was carving up the Sunday roast for everyone's dinner. And it was just, I, I don't know, it's one of those moments where you say, what is going on? I'm looking at, the, I'm like looking at a hole in this guy's chest and this lady's like, would you guys like to stay for dinner? It's, it's beef tonight. You know, it's... I'll just throw in another can of peas. You'll be right. With plenty of food for everyone. And it's, oh, it's unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's super surreal. I do always That's like to mention, though, saying again, that guy, is he's recovered really well. I think he uh, he's back on the bike now. So, Have you ever had a mid-air birth, Dave? Not you, personally, no, but as God, a patient. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Came close to a few ruse, which might have almost caused one. But um, had pretty close calls, but thankfully not one on board. A couple of the guys I work with, they've had a couple. And it's pretty exciting, but we generally try and avoid it. So I don't know if many people have seen, I know you have obviously seen Inside the King Air. There's not much space there for... <laughs> to give birth in and our stretchers yeah they can jig them a little bit but it's a pretty awkward position to be to be giving birth so we've had very close calls we've had people give birth in an ambulance just after we've got them to their destination we've, we've had just prior to loading them up we've decided to leave the baby there and then we'll load them up and take them from that point i understand that ambiotic fluid is actually highly corrosive so 
um, the engineers are, are really not keen when no. um, when you end up having a birth on board because the cleanup afterwards, they have to really go out of their way to make sure every single little bit is cleaned up. Yeah, it's quite a task. All the, all the floor panels come off and every nook and cranny, like that's probably the easiest way to ruin their day. Look, I just wanted to mention, so you were talking earlier about uh, resuscitation and the impact it can have on everybody involved. There was a a story, it's now about five or six years ago, but it's never left me. There was a, a gentleman who had been working out past Alice Springs and he'd on a, um, I think it was a mine site, if I remember right. Anyway, he had reported to the medical office because he had chest pains and they took him to the Alice Springs airport and the RFDS were going to transport him to Adelaide for a heart attack and he arrested there on the tarmac before they could get him into the plane and they brought him back around and then they got him into the plane and it's a, about an hour and a half, I think, flight from Alice to Adelaide, I think. Something like that. Anyway, he arrested 56 times in total. They had a, a defibrillator and it just kept on, you know, going up every time they would recharge the defib and, and go yeah. back in to bring him back. And um, he's still living and walking around today. And, and I thought about it afterwards and thought, my God, you know, the pilot, the nurse involved in that patient um, rescue all in, all out, and dashed to Adelaide to save a man's life who they didn't know and who, you know, is still walking around today. It's it's a very different work environment, Dave, to the average pilot. Do you ever reflect on that? Do you think that it makes your job more exciting or more daunting or how, how does it impact you? I find it really in, enriches my work. Yeah, I have a lot of colleagues that fly airlines and fly, being an airline pilot is a terrific job. You get to see the world, meet lots of great people, and there's all that there, but doing what we do with the RFDS, you get the added value of seeing the people that you're helping. Yeah, I, I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. Like similar to that lady that arrested the other day, I knew that I'm part of the team that's delivering this that can keep her alive or give her give her the best chance that she had at that time. I get so much satisfaction out of that. It's it's hard, really hard to describe, to be honest. Quite a feeling to have that out of out of where you work. If you were going to talk to another pilot that was thinking about joining the RFDS, would you recommend it? Oh, 100%. It's always important to think about what, you know, the reasons why. Um, and people want to fly for the RFDS for a heap of reasons. Like some people just like the added challenge. Some people like the, the medical side of things and so on. But it's important that the reasons why, like you acknowledge the fact that it can be a pretty tough job. You know, you see things that can be pretty tough at times to, to process. You're on call, you're working a 24-hour shift cycle. There's many things there that you just need to be aware about, but really I think it pays back in spades. Like it's, it's, a, it's a very rewarding job. I'd, I'd make it, recommend it to anyone. That's fabulous. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Dave. And congratulations, you've just had the arrival of your second child and with your lovely family there in Broken Hill. I really appreciate you giving us a little bit of insight into your work on a day-to-day basis with the RFDS and thanks so much for all the great jobs you do. I hope I go flying with you again sometime soon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Always welcome, Lana. Always, always welcome. Thank you so much. That'd be oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Hi, this is Rosalind from Caldwood, New South Wales, and that's on the south coast of New South Wales. Just calling to say how much I love your podcast. I really look forward to a new one being released each Thursday. Thank you for it and keep up the good work. Bye.